This podcast is sponsored by the Music Player Network at musicplayer.com, the premier musician resource for keyboard players and beyond. Since the year 2000, the Music Player Network has been the go-to source for news and views on music technology, playing tips, and gigging help. The Keyboard Corner is one of the longest-running keyboard forums in Internet history, with guitar, bass, drum, and numerous recording and music tech forums also on offer. Frequented by weekend warriors, manufacturers' representatives, and professionals alike, MPN provides an invaluable resource for any musician, and it's 100% free to sign up and use. Go to www.musicplayer.com to see for yourself. Welcome to episode 28 of the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host, David Holloway, and it's great as always to be here with you. And a big welcome again to Paul Bindig. How are you, Paul? I'm really well, thank you, David. Uh, and we're at the start of a double header, just pulling back the curtain a bit. We're doing two interviews in two days, and um, we're a bit excited about both of them. But let's talk about Dan Walker. So, Dan is keyboard player with iconic uh, American band Heart. And that's just a small part, like a lot of our guests, of what he does. He's, he's done a massive amount of other stuff as well. Um, as you'll hear, Dan has some great insights on um, touring with, with major bands. How we all have, still have those self-doubts about whether we're professional and a whole bunch of really cool lessons on, on being a good keyboard player as part of a bigger act. So, yeah, hope you enjoy um, this interview. Dan, thank you. Um, as I just said, it uh, shows huge dedication on a Friday afternoon to talk to anyone, so appreciate you doing this. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> so um, we've been asking our guests now for what's coming up to a year, um, how they've been keeping busy in these trying times. So how have you been achieving that? Well, uh, for me, yeah, I've, I've just been doing a lot of work in the home studio. I'm, I'm really grateful to uh, have a, have a position here where I live that I've, there's actually a separate little property, um, here at the house where I can go off by myself and, uh, and get some recording done. And I've have, of course, filled it chock full of keyboards. I think there's, there's two Hammonds in there right now and, uh, uh, Rhodes and a Wurlitzer and a Clav and, uh, weighted controllers and a big old pump organ that's actually in pretty good tune and well restored. So it's like I've I've got everything I need to to do my thing over there and a little bit of privacy and I'm able to make all the racket I want. Uh, so it's a it's a pretty ideal situation and it's a good thing because that's basically all I've been doing all year long. I've I've ventured out a couple of times for in-person recording sessions but uh with the way cases are spiking back up here in the states i'm i'm probably just yeah. gonna go pretty much back to total remote work uh for the next little while that's right and so um dan obviously it sounds like you're doing some work for others um in that studio you're also doing some stuff for yourself 
Uh, you know, I've never really had the urge to to write or record music on my own. Uh, it, it's it's just one of my things. I've always, from the beginning, I've just want to be. I just want to be in a band. I just want to help yeah. other people with their songs, and you know, maybe do some co-writing here and there. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've just the craft of helping other people yeah. build their thing is is very much what I'm into. Yeah. And also just the range. I mean, if you if you're a sideman, you get to you get to play with all these different people, especially being sort of constantly with the supply and demand mismatch that us keyboard players generally yes. profit from. Yes. Uh, Thank God yeah. for that. It <laughs> continues to be a theme in my career. It's like, oh, what am I doing getting this call? Oh yeah, it's because there's only like three guys in town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's even at my level, um, Dan, that's a story of my life. Yeah, so no, I totally hear you on that. And we are going to talk about some of your co-songwriting stuff later too, so I'm keen to, to discuss that. Um, Excellent. So let, let's go back then and, and do the usual um, potted history of Dan. So t tell us a little bit what your formative years were like as far as music and what got you actually into playing full-time. Well, it was, uh, so around the house, you know, my earliest memories were my parents, uh, playing the Beatles and Paul Simon and Motown records. And, uh, in particular, uh, one that was, I think literally stuck in the tape deck in the car, uh, in our childhood was, uh, a soundtrack album, the soundtrack to the movie, the big chill, oh, yeah. uh, that had a few key cuts that sort of wired my brain for Hammond organ from an early age. And those were, uh, uh good loving by the young rascals and a wider shade of pale, wow, of yeah. course. And I remember being six or seven years old and, and looking up a, a music store in the, in the phone book and calling and asking the man who answered what the sound was on a wider shade of pale. <laughs> and he said, kid, it's a Hammond organ and you can't afford one and, <laughs> and hung up. So I was pretty much chasing after one of those, uh, from that point on. But, um, there was a piano in the house and my parents noticed that I, you know, as a toddler was curious about it more than just the usual banging around kids like to do. I was actually Mom says I was trying to pick out tunes from the television before I was talking very much. I don't know how much stock to put in that, but that's the way she tells the story. So they they got me into classical lessons around the time I was five. And, um, you know, I was kind of in a constant state of more or less rebellion against that, as as most keyboard players of our type were. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm grateful they made me stick with it. Uh, and I'm grateful for the teachers I had along the way, even though, you know, clearly they knew I was a hopeless case as far as getting me to seriously engage with the classical repertoire. Uh, what little technique I have, I pretty much gained in those days uh, from when I was five to when I was 13. And um, and I had a couple of good teachers along the way that sort of, uh, you know, put the put the traditional arc aside and met me where I was and taught me a little bit of theory and taught me, well, you know, you, you know how these notes sound together and you like playing that chord. This is why, you know, and explaining the scales and the, and the majors and the minors and all that stuff, rather than just trying to, uh, you know, apply the ruler to the knuckles to keep me on the, uh, designated fingerings of the designated pieces in the book. So, um, and then I think, um, maybe when I was about 12, 
my uncle Ben uh, gave me a few CDs. CDs were new at that point, and he gave me a copy of uh, Piano Man, that second Billy Joel album. And I, that just connected with 12-year-old me, and I sort of slowly worked my way through and learned every song on that record by ear. And then I went back to Cold Spring Harbor and learned all those by ear. And then I went forward through the entire Billy Joel catalog. And I, I finished with that project right around the time he put out River Dreams, which was his last nice. album. So it was uh, it was really good ear training for me and, and great training, too, on, uh, you know, what kind of parts make sense when you're playing with a band as a keyboard player. Uh, you know, when to hammer away with that left hand like Richard T and and when to get out of the way and just play something that's kind of like a guitar part uh, and when to, you know, when to let the piano be a piano. Um, and that also introduced me a lot to, to a lot of the great guest musicians Billy had, especially on some of those later albums. You know, I had Steve Winwood come in and play Hammond yeah, on a Cut yeah. or do a duet with Ray Charles. And so that kind of helped broaden my horizons even though i was a you know just a kid in oklahoma and didn't know any keyboard players uh most after i after my parents finally let me quit the piano lessons i tried taking guitar lessons for a while tried being a drummer for a while and and one of my teachers one of my guitar teachers actually at a certain point just said you know you should probably stick with the keyboards <laughs> And, you know, this is like a little bit of hit to the ego. And then he said, well, here's the thing. If you if you play keyboards, you're never going to be hurting for work. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that, you know, like we said earlier, that was that was definitely the advice that has turned out to be great. And he taught me even more about, you know, playing with bands and what what keyboard players really do in that role. So it's uh yeah a gentleman named kevin webb and another guy named gary riley really were my best uh playing with the playing with the band keyboard teachers um and they weren't even really keyboard players amazing uh and then yeah i just kind of got in a garage band when i was in high school it was uh it was kind of an oddball garage band we were a we were a 10 piece horn band uh cuz you know i was, I was in marching band in high school there at Moore High School in Oklahoma and so had plenty of horn player friends and we all loved you know tower power and stuff like that so I was like well I'm never going to be able to afford to have a band like this <laughs> once I'm out of high school and out in the real world so I might as well have fun with it now so uh yeah it was kind of kind of oddball all of our high school band friends were you know just playing punk or metal or whatever and we're <laughs> We're over here covering a bunch of, you know, classic uh, Oakland sound stuff and, you know, New Orleans trying to get a dirty dozen brass band stuff to sound right with a bunch of white boys from Oklahoma, uh, you know, things like that. So, um, yeah, those were those were kind of my early days. And um, I, I had a big decision point in high school going into college. I was working at a at a music store, Norman Music Center there in Norman, Oklahoma, and I was trying to decide whether to go to college for uh, jazz studies. I was going to try and get in at Indiana University and really do the thing, or uh, take a full ride and go to the University of Oklahoma just down the road and study engineering. Uh, and um, you know, I was my parents were very supportive of whichever way I wanted to do it, and. 
you know, I went and I talked to this gentleman, Cleve Warren. He's a great drummer and worked there at the music store. And uh, he, I was totally, fully expecting to get the follow your dream speech from Cleve. And he, he gave me the other one. He said, the, uh, <laughs> he said, go to engineering school, take the full ride, you numbskull. But just don't ever let yourself go down a career path with an employer or anything like that, where there's no time left for you to play. Uh, always make sure there's, there's room for music in your life and just never quit playing. And even in school, he just gave me the advice, you know, go to engineering school, but, uh, play in the jazz band, uh, mm. there at the university. So no matter how busy you get with engineering, you're still going to be playing jazz at least three hours a week. Mm. So, you know, you're not going to fall off a cliff, uh, musically during those four or five years. And that's, uh, that's how I did it. Oh, cool. So I got to know, Dan, what, what, en- what engineering did you do? What- uh, I studied industrial engineering oh, yeah. there at the university of Oklahoma and, um, uh, also got a minor in computer science and my, my sort of main, uh, mentor and advisor there at the university is a guy named Dr. Robert Schlegel, and he was a musician too. Uh, he actually had a little cover band, and, and we uh, we played gigs together <laughs> from time to time because they needed a they needed a keyboard player too, as it turns out. And it sort of doesn't surprise <laughs> me. And I think I've had this discussion previously with a guest. It's just that mathematical component of um, keyboards and music more broadly. I, I it sort of doesn't surprise me, but that's yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, there's there's definitely connections there. And so you're you're at university. You obviously uh, graduate, I assume. And and so what what's the next stage of your your musical career then? Well, you know, throughout college, I was I was playing, you know, with bands around town and uh, just really kind of learning learning how to play with good musicians and and great rhythm sections. Uh, there there in Oklahoma, there's a lot of great musicians. Uh, Played with a guy named uh, Chabon Tiger. We had a, a band there for a while called uh, House. Okay. Uh, some other great musicians, and we we did a lot of like Little Feet and a lot of classic electric blues, and just really learning that music. Um, I uh, played with a uh, you know my my general theme throughout those years were just to say yes to everybody. Yeah. So uh, country bands, uh, you know, the first band I was really in in well i don't want to say the first probably the second or third but there was a band called mama sweet that was a a great sort of roots uh country rock band but we'd go off on these you know psychedelic rock journeys too it was it was a really great band and a great writing and the thing about that one was the the bass player had sort of given the front man a little bit of a complex about every song being an A. And so he just started putting his capo, I think, in a random position every time he went to write a new song. So that was really good training for me because all of a sudden I'm, I'm playing all these country licks and, you know, uh, D flat or whatever. And uh, I just I learned to be a hard ass with myself about not using the transpose button. And that was uh, that did a lot of good for me. And, uh, you know, on through just other bands there in Oklahoma City, there was a, a hard rock band, sort of poppy rock band called Aranda uh, that I eventually got involved with. And those guys were were doing some more serious touring. They uh, uh, they ended up doing quite a bit of touring as a support act with Daughtry and Three Doors Down. Okay. 
And I would go out with them from time to time, you know, just go out for a week or so because I was still working a day job and they were very much in the situation of, you know, getting paid peanuts to go out and open on these arena shows and they're chasing tour buses around in an old 15 passenger van and single axle trailer. And, you know, one, one crew guy helping with the driving, settling the shows and running sound and tearing down the drum kit and, you know, generally working his tail off. So that was sort of my first view of, of touring from the perspective of, of an opening band, but also getting to see what it was like for the, you know, for the bigs that are selling 10,000 tickets or whatever. And, uh, yeah, it was exciting. Uh, but at the same time, it wasn't anything I could quit my job over at that point. So, um, and yeah, it's just like, things here and there. Oh yeah. And then the other one I want to mention in my twenties in the Oklahoma and Texas years is a, an artist, uh, named, uh, Casey Clifford. She's a singer songwriter there. Yes. Uh, sort of out of the folk, uh, world, you know, playing house concerts and very, uh, guitar, acoustic guitar oriented stuff. But, um, we hooked up and I started playing shows with her here and there. And, over the years, we really became to to be close musical partners to the point where she was sort of the first person that dragged me, uh, more or less kicking and screaming into co-writing. Uh, so over the last five years or so, I'd say we've ended up writing an album together and putting it out that was very piano oriented and sort of a big contrast to her earlier stuff. It's It's very much in the sort of uh carol king kind of classic piano pop vein and uh we had a lot of fun writing writing that stuff together and it was uh it sort of opened up a new aspect of what i consider myself to be as a musician being able to help someone in the writing process like that well, on, on that subject dan uh david and i think you deserve credit for involvement in what's probably one of the most positive songs to come out of 2020 which is rise up uh, with uh, Clifford, yeah, um, which obviously you co-wrote. Interested in the in the the songwriting approach when you've been working with her. What does that look like for you? Well, you know, she was part of what caused that sort of recalculation for her was uh, that she uh, had kids, and so she couldn't, you know, go out and live on the road out of the back of the minivan with her husband playing, you know, house concerts and stuff, uh, which. Sure uh, freed her to, uh, write music that was presented in a different way. You know, it didn't ha necessarily have to be stuff that could come across on two acoustic guitars anymore. Uh, so she just asked me to come over and just said, look, you don't have to bring any ideas or anything. I've, I've got some, some ideas in a notebook, lyrically, some fragments of melody lines. I just want you to come and come up with some changes that sound good, you know, just like listen to me sing and play stuff that makes sense with it. Cause she can play piano, but you know, she can't jump around all 12 keys and, and reharmonize things on the fly and, and stuff like that. So she just needed someone that could come in and help with the harmonic side of things. And then it very mm -hmm. quickly developed into we're working together on, crafting lines and the, and the bigger philosophical things of like, what do we want to say right now? Uh, with the, you know, all the things the the world's been going through over the last four or five years in our country too, you know, what's, what are we really trying to communicate? And 
that, yeah, that writing partnership very quickly blossomed into something that meant a lot to both to us. And, um, that song in particular, you know, some of those on that record, we really labored over and she's one of those that she doesn't want to stop until she finishes a song. So there were definitely some nights where she put the kids to bed and, you know, I was at, at this point, I was already living in Seattle, but I'd fly back to Oklahoma on a more or less regular basis back in the days when you just got on an airplane and the <laughs> drop of the hat. Um, and she'd put the kids to bed and I'd come over and we'd go down to the piano in the basement and start working. And, uh, sometimes, you know, we'd be at it until one or two in the morning, just trying to really get something down that we, uh, that we felt great about, but that one rise up, um, as I recall, came out pretty quick and easy. And, uh, you know, she had that lyrical idea and, just started singing and I started playing those pretty much just like it is on the record, just that kind of mm -hmm. rubato intro, uh, where she's just kind of preaching, you know, mm -hmm. and then we're, we're off to the races that left hand thing started happening. And yeah, I, I know it's a cliche to say it writes itself, but that one, that one came out really easy and we both felt really great about it. And, you know, getting in the studio and, and tracking it live, which was a departure for her, uh, all of her records before that had been built a track at a time. And, and I sort of lobbied hard for let's, you know, let's hire a great band and track this thing live. Just like those, those classic seventies records were done, you know, at least the basics and, uh, yeah. and her producer, longtime producer partner, Will Hunt agreed. We found a great studio in Oklahoma city with a great sounding piano and just went in there and did it, did all the basics in a week. And, it felt so great and so natural uh, throughout the whole process. But yeah, that one, Rise Up, I think is is one of my tip-top favorites yeah. on that record, too. So I'm glad you guys latched onto oh, that yeah. one as well. No, <laughs> very, very um, upbeat and positive. I'll po be posting a link in the show notes for people to check it out. It's, yeah, it's excellent. Um, great. Now, j just to jump back a bit again, Dan, sorry. Um, so you, you were seeing support bands, as you said, chasing the real tour buses and so on. So what actually was the pivotal moment that got you to where you're on the tour bus? Uh, well, you know, it was, so around the time I was 30, I moved to Seattle and that was, you know, we had an opportunity to, to come up here and be with my wife's extended family. Uh, and so it was going to be cheap rent in the Seattle area, which I don't know what you know about the uh, United States uh, real estate markets, but cheap rent in the Seattle area is something you don't turn down. So uh, even though I didn't know any musicians in Seattle or anything, we we both, you know, packed up and went. Um, and it was a hard first year uh, not knowing anybody, but I'm glad I, I stuck with it uh, because it once I really got to know some musicians in this town, that's, that's really what opened some doors. And, uh, um, I worked with an artist named Leroy Bell, uh, here in the Pacific Northwest who has a long and excellent pedigree. He was in that group, Bell and James mm. that had a couple of big hits at the tail end of the disco era there. And, uh, he was on the first American season of the X factor yes. and got pretty far. And, uh, I just love his whole, his voice and his whole aesthetic. And I was really like trying to weasel my way into that gig, you know, cause I was like, Hey, this guy's in Seattle. He clearly, 
could use a keyboard player. Uh, you know, let's let's make this happen. And that was kind of my first lesson in trying to cold call your way into a band, no matter how much it makes sense to you, is never going to work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're just like some guy that nobody knows. Uh, but I ended up, uh, you know, working with random bands on Craigslist and things like that. And then, uh, you know, through a through a connection of a connection, I was playing a rehearsal one day with Leroy's drummer. I was like, okay. And then six months later, he texted me and said, hey, do you double on guitar at all? <laughs> and I just had to honestly answer, no, I don't. But could you please just call me for whatever it is that they want anyway? Because it's it's going to be good, I promise. And yeah, yeah. they called me in to play some Hammond on a, on a record called uh, Rock and Soul for Leroy Bell. And after I left the studio, they called and asked if I wanted to join the band. So, you know, it's it's got to happen organically, I guess. That's the... Yeah one of the big career lessons I had out of that. And I had to relearn it a couple of more times. Uh, you know, I, I knew and loved and, uh, respected and enjoyed the work of heart from when I was a kid. Mm. Uh, but I never would have thought, uh, you know, I certainly wasn't like trying to work my way into that scene. Um, I think I was maybe about, I think it was 2016. Yeah. And I was pretty well established in the local scene and I was doing a, a show, uh, with, uh, a singer around here named star Anna. She was doing a David Bowie tribute night and, uh, it was a, a really good one with a, you know, little small string and horns ensemble. And, uh, we had a few rehearsals and everything was going great. And the bass player on that gig, Andy Stoller, uh, said, Hey, Ann Wilson's putting together a solo band. Would you be interested if, you know, I was thinking about recommending you, but I just want to make sure that was something you could do. Uh, you know, it was like, yes, yeah, please, <laughs> please do. And yeah, just a couple of weeks later, I was, you know, chatting on the phone with Ann talking about music we love. And, uh, you know, I flew down to her place in Florida, uh, where she was living at the time. And it, it wasn't even really an audition. It was just her and her husband and the longtime guitar player and uh, a producer as well on, on some albums with heart, uh, a gentleman named Craig Bartok. Okay. And uh, I don't even think we played any music. We just hung out all weekend and uh, uh, talked about life and talked about music that we love. And at some point I wandered over to a keyboard that was set up and uh, started playing uh, some Aretha Franklin thing and oh, yeah. I heard her heard Ann from the other room starting to sing. And I was like, okay, yeah, this is going to work. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a month later we were off to the races on the, on the 2017 Ann Wilson solo tour. And, um, yeah, that's, I pretty much just fell into it backwards. So I got to say, thanks Andy Stoller, yeah. uh, for, <laughs> for recommending me for that. And uh, from there, you know, I was on the road with, with Ann for a couple of years, uh, headlining uh, theaters, you know, sort of her first time being back as a solo artist. And then in, in 2018, we did, um, we did a big package tour in the summer with uh, Paul Rogers and Jeff Beck. Wow. And that was an incredible experience. And also we um, recorded an album that year called Immortal, uh, that, uh, she used her live band on plus, plus a few extra great session musicians, uh, 
uh, did that at Village Recorder. It was a it was an interesting project. It was kind of a covers album. Um, but as everybody recalls, back in 2016, 2017, there was this thing where so many of the great musicians and artists and songwriters passed away in like a year. Everybody yeah, was yeah. talking about what a horrible year it was. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, I'm just going to make a tribute album to all these people. And and we did that. And she kind of really went through, much to the chagrin of the record company, picked her favorite songs yes. <laughs> or the songs she thought she could sink her, really sink her yeah. teeth into as a, as a singer uh, rather than just going for the hits. And, and when we did do a hit, like uh, we did life in the fast lane for the Eagles yes. and she was like, okay, but we're not doing the riff. Right. <laughs> you know, we're going to, we're going to really rework the thing. And we ended up turning it into kind of a, a swampy funk tune actually. Yeah. I've, I've actually yeah. heard that one a few times. I love it. And the other one is, uh, is Baker street on that album. Yeah, 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 that was the other thing. We're doing yeah. Baker Street. We're not doing the sax solo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I think Andy, our bass player, did did work in a quote of the of the sax line on bass at some point in that song when we're in full tilt, pinball wizard mode at the end. Uh, yeah, that that album was just a lot of fun. Really getting in and live tracking with those great players and and coming up with ways to reinvent those songs. So um, let's talk about hearts. Yeah. With, uh, can can you give our listeners a, a bit of a insight and vibe into, you know, the the experience of of touring w- with such a, a big band and the, the dynamic of, of working with uh, Anne and Nancy Wilson? How does it all work? What's what's the role of the the musician? What's the role of the leader? I tell you what it. it is I think it's unique. I haven't done a lot of work at that level in terms of being in a band, you know, I've, I've, but you know, what you hear, you know, sort of at the bands at that level, things are a little more formal, right? Like there's a musical director Mm -hmm. and there's a chain of command and there's an expectation Mm -hmm. that you're going to nail parts as on the record and everything's going to be very nailed down every night. And there's probably, going to be some backing tracks that we don't talk about but are there and mm-hmm. I, you know in my work with ann you know sort of scrappy little four-piece band i i joke that it was kind of like deep purple backing up ann wilson because it was just uh <laughs> drums bass guitar and me playing a lot of distorted hammond organ uh because that's what i do in a four-piece band it just makes yeah. sense um going from that into heart i really thought it was going to be a totally different much more, you know, locked down, I don't want to say assembly line, but a much more structured situation. And it really wasn't there. There really is no musical director in that band. There's Anne and Nancy and what they want. And sometimes they agree and sometimes they disagree. And it's a process of getting to a consensus, but it's Mm -hmm. just like, it's just like being in a band when you're a kid, like it's that same dynamic. Nothing's you know, nobody's really telling you what to play. Um, I ended up just going with it. There are a lot of songs that really got reinvented. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of things we did sort of faithfully and then blew them up in the middle and turned them into something totally different for a minute and then back to the original. And all that basically came together spontaneously during the rehearsals for that tour. And 
you know, uh, no backing tracks beyond an occasional, you know, Denny might kick off a percussion loop on a laptop. Um, sure. But nothing was on rails, you know, much to the chagrin of uh, the guys in the in the lighting and other show department. Like they really got to listen because it might do something totally different from one night to the next. You know, you get yeah, yeah, it's cool. got to be ready for whatever's going to happen. And I remember about halfway through that first long 10 week run we had out there. It was like, I wonder how many bands are playing for crowds this big on a consistent basis just free like mm-hmm. this free of free of backing tracks and and pre-programmed light shows like we're just up there doing it you know it's it was a real joy to do it with those musicians uh and obviously you know i've been working with her for three years live and four years you know with this sort of weird remote collaborating year that we've had uh total but in those three years live there was never really a show where she didn't do something that just made me laugh out loud, mm. you know, going, going for some completely different vocal run. It's just like, this is r- just ridiculous. How did I end up here? <laughs> and you can, that must, yeah. <laughs> so sorry, Dan, I was just going to say that must've been really fun and, um, you know, engaging for you as a musician to be, you know, I'll use the inverted commas, real band sort of situation where anything can happen on the night. Yeah. Yeah. And, and anything often did, you know, we, we had, (laughs) we, we had one train wreck, which I don't even want to talk about, but it was, uh, the overall arc of that heart tour was just up. It just kept getting better. That whole first nine, 10 week run. And we took a short two break wait, two week break and went back out for another few weeks. And it was just like every single show got better. And the freedom to do that, to have those subtle changes over time and the parts and the arrangements. And it was never really discussed either. Those things just evolved on stage. And the the joy of working with appreciative crowds like that, with world-class, you know, singers and songwriters and instrumentalists that we had in that lineup and and just being able to do your thing, yeah. uh, not feeling like somebody's staring down your neck on every detail. You know, I, I played, you know, you go look at YouTube comments and people are complaining about it. Like, what's this keyboard player doing playing so much Hammond? There's no Hammond in heart. It's like, well, <laughs> there is now. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's, Dan, that's a great point because I watched a few videos of the 2019 when you're touring and, and you're right, it appeared to get better. And there, there are a couple of things I observed. One that you were so into it. Now, what I'm talking about is even in the ballads, you're playing a lot of the time with your eyes closed, which is, you know, it happens to a lot of players, but you can tell that you're absolutely enjoying the moment and, and doing what you're doing. Um, the other thing that stood out for me is I, I think it was Alone, on what it's, and it's a much slower, more piano-driven, uh, I mean, it's always a piano-driven song, but more piano-driven now, the, the way yeah. you, you play it live. Um, and of course, being the cynical musician, I'm going... Oh, Anne's got to have dro- they've got to have dropped that key, and of course there has been no key drop, which I just <laughs> yeah. find, I just find absolutely gobsmacking. Like it just it's a testament to her power as a singer. I thought no, they've got to have dropped the key. So I brought up the original clip. I went, holy right. shit, it's in the same key. Yep, yeah. There's uh, it's it's startling yes. <laughs> when you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just couldn't get because there's some big notes in that song. So, um, oh, yeah. yeah, so that I, I, I totally agree with you. And I, I suppose um, 
it must have been a, an astounding experience for you as your first, uh, albeit over three years, a, a major touring operation. Yeah, it's it's really a joy. And it's funny that you mentioned alone because that was one of the first things Anne said to me, even in, even in advance of us starting to work together on her solo tour in 2017, she, she said, Hey, look, you know, there's some things I'm not going to do. I'm not going to do magic, man, but we, we definitely are going to be doing alone, but I want you to come up with a different way to present that song. And that's basically all she said was just like, make it your own. And I, you know, jazzed up quite a bit of the harmony and we reharmonized a few things and, you know, changed the bridge and switched the arrangement up a little bit, but just being able to given that, that level of freedom, just like, just Mm. bring something in for, for like our signature, you know, one of our biggest hits we ever had, you know, it's like, let's try something different. And, And we did. And that arrangement sort of made the cut when we, uh, when we, when they got heart back together and, and Ann and Nancy asked me to do it. And, um, yeah, that, that version of alone, we basically just kept doing just reinforced mm-hmm. with more guitars and Nancy was super into it as well. So, uh, just, yeah, the, like I said, the level of freedom, uh, with that group for the trust in the musicians to do what they do is, uh, yeah, it's a real crazy. joy working with them. Um, and Dan, we've got to have the inevitable, and it can be quick if you like, rig discussion. So what is your go-to heart rig that you, that you use, used on that tour? You know, the, the core of it uh, is, is really just a Nord Stage 2 Compact, which has been the, the core of what I do basically ever since it came out. Uh, my, the original appeal of it was I was doing a lot of flying back and forth between Seattle and Oklahoma City, still working with independent artists. And the great thing about it was you could put it in a Pelican rifle case in a, in the Nord gig bag, and it was 49.9 pounds. So you could fly with it without being charged extra. And you've got all your sounds right there and you just slap an 88 key weighted, whatever underneath it. And you've got, mm-hmm. you've got a rig ready to go. You don't have to worry about a laptop or anything like that. And it really covers all the bases quite competently. I always, uh, ran the Hammond sounds through a, a ventilator, uh, Leslie Sim or a real Leslie, uh, if I could get one. Um, and, uh, that's another thing. The Nord stage two makes easy cause you can just route instrument outputs through to the auxiliary outs. So, um, and that's really all that's needed to make that Nord stage two organ good enough for, you know, rock and soul and Americana and, all those kinds of music. I wouldn't want to try to play a jazz Hammond gig with it, but for, mm-hmm. for everything else, put it through a ventilator or put it through a real Leslie and you're, you're pretty much there. Okay. And the, and the quickness, and really this was just as important for me with Anne and with heart because of the spontaneity musically of that situation, uh, being able to very quickly change up sounds and patches and slap an effect on something or reprogram a split or a layer, you know, all that is just so fast on the Nord stage too. And, you know, there are some other platforms out there that have amazing sounds, but the, the quickness and the fact that I already climbed the learning curve on the Nord stage too, that really, you know, prompted me to stick with it. So underneath that with heart, I've got a Yamaha CP 300, that big, that big old heavy beast with the built-in speakers. And that's just, 
basically working as a weighted 88 controller for the sounds for the piano sounds mm -hmm. in the Nord. But, um, one of the things I did with Anne and with Hart was my sub mixer with all my keyboard sounds. I would run uh, the headphone out from that into those built-in speakers on the CP300. So, so you know, you've got that feeling of a vibrating instrument under your hands as you're playing, even though you got ears in, you're not listening to it to listen to it. But, and also that made things easier at Soundcheck. You know, it's like, well, I don't necessarily have to have the monitor guy get out of his bunk and come yeah. turn on the monitor board just for me to work on some sounds. I can just work on them by myself while they're aiming lights or whatever. And, um, and also it never happened, but it was like, well, it's good to have it just in case since there's yeah. no wedges here. Uh, if something goes wrong with the earbuds, at least I'll have a chance of being able to hear myself out of something other than bouncing off the back wall of the house. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. And then the other things that I added just to, just to have a big, fun, spontaneous, old school, multi-keyboard rig when I started working with Ann was the, the, um, uh, Mellotron, uh, M4000 wow, D, yeah. uh, the kind of big full size one with the big flat top. And I got one of the expansion cards with that one. I, I really kind of splurged, you know, it's like, well, this is all stuff I want anyway. Yeah, so yeah. let's just, let's take advantage. And then also I got a, uh, a sequential OB six. They were Dave oh, Smith nice. instruments still mm -hmm. at the, at that time in 2017. But, uh, and that one's been going strong too. So I've got a nice L with two tiers on both sides. And that was the and rig. And then when I got the call for heart, of course, the the thing you have to add to that is a mini Moog because <laughs> you're going to be playing Magic Man yeah, and yeah. you don't want to do that without a Moog. So I went with the Model D uh, reissue that they were uh, putting out at that time, which is just a, like a really faithful, I believe they started up production on some components uh, to be able to have the exact same audio pathway basically as the originals. Uh, you know, they added MIDI and, and, and a dedicated LFO. So you don't have to give up the third oscillator just to get vibrato. Uh, but other than that, man, it is, it is that sound. And um yeah. I was just super into the idea. I don't know. I guess it's a masochistic streak, but I was super into the idea of doing it like Howard Lease did it. Like, I'm just, I'm going to have a mini Moog up here with no patch memory, <laughs> well. just knobs and a, and a tuner pedal. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, just hope you get it right every night. And most nights I did the, the biggest time I didn't will be my train wreck oh, story nice. when we get to that. Massively looking forward to that. Yeah. And just while I think of it, Dan, too, with the um, heart rig, you, you play a bit of accordion live, don't you? Yeah, it's uh, it's more than I was expecting <laughs> and and probably way more than anyone else was expecting. But I, I started doing that with... Um, with Ann Wilson, uh, I just kind of brought it to rehearsals on a whim and, uh, it ended up getting quite a, quite a bit of use. A lot of that was in that four piece band. Uh, you know, uh, there were songs where our bass player would play acoustic guitar. And so I was looking for something else to do. I'd play some accordion or I'd play keyboard bass with my right hand and play chords on the accordion with my left. And, just having another sound, you know, when it's just the four of us being able to switch things up sonically and, and visually too. But mm. 
Yeah, that accordion, it's a it's by a company here in Seattle named Potosa, who's been in Seattle since I think at least the fifties, and it's an old accordion making family and they make beautiful instruments. There's this uh uh harmonic with a k is the name of the company that makes the mic systems they install right. but it's it's just incredibly easy to use live you know the feedback rejection is great the sound is great you've got you know level control between the the right hand and the bass section and tone controls and it's just the thing's kind of been bomb proof it was uh I had been using sort of hand-me-down accordions with bands I was playing with when I was younger, and a gentleman named Mark Cosgrove, who plays guitar with David Bromberg, uh, who I uh, uh, periodically yeah, yeah. get to record and play gigs with. Um, I was, you know, bitching about my out-of-tune, wheezy accordion with the leak and the bellows, and he was saying, well, Dan, I don't know if you noticed, but like you're you're playing with david bromberg and we're in a big nice theater and like maybe you should spend a few bucks and get yourself a nice accordion <laughs> like maybe it's time so uh that was good advice uh and that accordion served me very well over the years and yeah uh as it turned out i brought it to heart rehearsals in 2019 and uh ended up playing kind of a ridiculous amount of accordion i think for the first few weeks of the tour i was playing it on it might have been four songs uh but then they they swapped out uh, uh, for the Led Zeppelin cover portion of the night. They oh, eventually yeah. swapped out uh, um, Battle of Evermore and put Stairway to Heaven in, which, of course, ever since the, <laughs> the Kennedy Center Honors performance, everybody always wants to hear him do Stairway. Yeah. So so after that, I think it was just three songs on accordion, but still an, an awful lot for a heart set. That's right. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. But the but the Wilsons uh, loved the sound, and it's cool to be able to yeah. stand up, do something different, and and so yeah, that's that's been great. Look, it's, I'd argue between, and then this is in totally different ways between you and Weird Al Yankovic, you've made the accordion cool. <laughs> I'm I'm trying my best. I I leave polka to the experts, yeah, but that's uh, right. <laughs> but yeah, I listened to a lot of Weird Al as a kid, so it, oh, it, more Weird Al than uh, than Lawrence Welk reruns. So it may yeah. have sort of ingrained the accordion oh, in my brain a little bit. I think the guy's a god, and Albuquerque is one of the best songs ever written. But that's just me. Oh yeah, yeah, classic. <laughs> yeah. Dan, t- talking gear, you you mentioned earlier um, some of the cool vintage stuff you've got uh, at your your home studio I, I was really intrigued by the mention of the pump organ and, and i reckon uh, my auntie had one of these and is this the one where y- your feet operate like a two pedal bellows which pushes air past the reeds to get the sound is that is that what we're talking about yep that's the that's the very one and this one you know they that some of them are small and some of them are big this one is a real beast. It's got, right. it's just one manual, but it's split into sort of two manuals within a manual. And you've got two different sets of stops, which apply to the left-hand side and the right-hand side of the keyboard. And uh-huh. um, yeah, the, this guy who, you know, I just found it for sale on Craigslist for a couple hundred bucks. And it was like, it's been fully lovingly rebuilt and tuned to concert pitch and the bellows have been reconditioned, so you're not having to like run a marathon on those little pedals just to get enough yes. air pressure to get it to speak. You know, it's like this is really like a workable instrument. And um, he'd done some modifications. He added a, a, a 
stop to it, some sort of Highland pipe stop that was like a, an octave and a fifth above the fundamental, um, sort of sure. sort of like that one draw bar on a Hammond organ, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which is totally not like historically accurate with a pump organ from that era. This guy is just like a tinkerer. And, yeah, uh, uh, but yeah, that thing's a real joy. It's got a knee lever for, for swell and then a knee lever where as you push it out to the left, it brings all the stops in no matter how few you have pulled out. So you can just very quickly, you know, thicken up to full organ chaos. And, uh, yeah, for 200 bucks plus having to rent the U-Haul to get it out of the guy's garage and into my studio, that's, that thing gets more use, you know, especially on, on folk records, but on quite a bit of rock stuff too, just as a background element. Um, yeah. It's a real joy having it in there. Normally you go into a studio and if there is one, it's it's exactly between two half steps from concert pitch out of tune. <laughs> you know, they like pitch corrected after the fact and it's but you just have to cringe as you're playing the part. Uh, sure. so, yeah, I love that thing. It's a Etsy or SD. I can't remember the. Uh, yeah, SD, I believe is the brand name. E-S-T-E-Y. Yeah. Big old. Yeah, or a real, a real physical way to interact with a keyboard too, playing that way. So it'd be a lot of fun, I imagine. Oh, yeah. You talked earlier on about you talked earlier on about the being in a band is, is your passion. And even on if listeners go to your Facebook page, they'll see it says, I just want to make music with my friends. Or all I want to do is make music with my friends, which is cool. And you sort of said that's that's really your thing. And you talked about learning to play in a band, and I'm interested in: uh, would there be lessons that you've learned that would be the most valuable ones you'd pass on to other players about what works well when playing in a band? Yeah, definitely. I've got a few of those. That line that uh, I just want to make music with my friends—that's actually a line from a Leroy Bell song uh, from the from the last album we did together. Uh, and, uh, yeah, as soon as I heard him sing that one, when he first brought that mm. tune to the band, I was like, yep, that's it. That's my life motto. <laughs> I'm just going to yeah. put that on the top of my yeah. social media page. Um, as far as lessons learned, uh, and the, and the things that I learned along the way of, of getting to where I've gotten, uh, and getting to work with the people I've gotten to work with, um, uh, th- I'd say the first one is just never phone it in on a gig. Like no matter how pointless the gig might seem, no ma- like I've done more than one where we literally outnumbered the audience. Um, no matter how demoralized you might be about the prospects of the project in, or the, you know, if there's somebody in the band who's playing just as wearing you out or, you know, if you're playing a, a recording session, you know, if you're getting a session work and you're just, you've just been called in as a session player and the material maybe isn't to your taste, just do your best, do your best to make that music better. Because oftentimes what I found is it's how you handle yourself in those situations that people remember later. And more than once I've gotten a call for something amazing out of a situation like that. Um, so that's, that's thing number one and thing number two, you know, it's a, it's a cliche, but you gotta listen, uh, you know, and, and what that means practically in, in live terms is it at rehearsals and at sound checks before gigs, 
uh, take the time to make sure you can hear everyone in the band, even if even if you know the material backwards and forwards. Uh, you know, if you got a good monitor guy, uh, take advantage of it. You know, take the time and soundtrack and soundcheck and ask for what you need. And don't ask just don't just ask for a ton of yourself. Don't bring some huge amp that can blow everyone away on stage. Because uh, as keyboard players, what we're often doing is filling in the gaps, mm-hmm. and we're we're adding or, like an almost an orchestral element that mm-hmm. creates atmosphere and enriches the music. But to be able to do that, you have to know where those gaps are, mm-hmm. and the frequency spectrum, and rhythmically, you got to know what everyone else is doing to to know what to add to it. And yeah, so that's number two, and. Um, Number three, I'd say, and it's they're all pretty much equally important, but uh, the one that I really go back to is to do your homework. Uh, as a guy with a with a day gig, I spent a lot of years sort of wrangling with myself about the question of what it means to be quote professional as a musician because just because I wasn't put, putting food on the table with my music. And I felt inadequate about that. You know, it's like, oh, am I really fully committing to being a musician? But, you know, I eventually got over that. I think it was the day I played on the David Letterman show. It was like, okay, I'm a, I'm a professional musician. I have to admit it now. And what I think I decided after that, like, it doesn't matter where the money in your bank account is coming from. What makes you professional is whether you're reliably useful to the people that hire you. And to me, homework, preparation, that is, that's the essence of professionalism. Uh, do everything you can to learn the material backwards and forwards at home. And for me, in practical terms, what that almost always means is listening, just total immersion listening. I'm taking a shower, I'm doing the dishes, I'm working on something else, I'm mowing the lawn, I've got my earbuds in, I'm, I'm listening all the time to the next music that I'm going to be playing on stage with people. Um, and that's, you know, sometimes that's all you get. Sometimes, especially on the higher levels, you're, you're thrown into these situations where it's a huge opportunity, but you're, you're going to go out there and play in front of a thousand people material you've never played before. And there will be no rehearsal. Uh, and so, you know, you can learn a lot just by, immersing yourself in recordings like that. And that's always been my method, um, of homework. Uh, you know, charts are great and I'll do those too. It kind of depends on how much time I have and whether reading on stage is going to be an option or not. It's easier for us keyboard players because we can always sneak an iPad into somewhere in the forest (laughs) of gear. Uh, but you know, the sooner you can just really get it completely in your soul and in your brain, the better. And I'll, I'll go to great lengths. I'll, I'll track down bootleg live recordings and, uh, as well as studio versions. I'll, I'll rip audio off of YouTube with audio hijack and put them in MP3s and just have them in a playlist on my phone. And I, I sort them by play count, the old, good old iTunes smart play t- playlist. So whatever song in the batch of songs I need to learn that I've listened to the least as soon as I hit play, that's the one that's going to play. Mm. And yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's the thing. And then I guess 
if I could do one more, do everything you can to make the front of house engineer's job easier. Yeah. Uh, don't second guess him. You can't hear what's going out there. He can. He knows what he needs to make a band sound good. Uh, so I'll always check in like, okay, can I eat this differently for you? So you aren't having to, you know, chase around and pull low end out of certain sounds and then boost it back up later. Like, just let me make it easy on you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, from, from clubs all the way to, to arenas, you know, work as a team with that guy. Cause he's got his hands full, usually just trying to make the vocals intelligible, uh, <laughs> which is the important thing. Yeah, so that's right. Uh, great, they great, great lessons, Dan. Um, I think you could do a whole episode even on the that internal struggle when you're working a day job. Like I could see that we may have to get you back one day. That's an yeah, a, a fascinating discussion for what a lot of our listeners will be experiencing as well. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it's a thing, and especially in the modern music biz, there there are fewer and fewer ways to make it a full time living, and uh, and yet people still feel a certain kind of way about that like well if i'm not fully committed am i really doing something worthwhile it's like yes you're doing something worthwhile if nobody ever hears it the creating is what makes it worthwhile that's right and i've got to say if you hadn't have clicked onto that after the letterman show i'd be really starting to worry about you so that's 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 good (laughs) yeah yeah i i I had to admit it to myself at that point yeah you're not flipping Um, that one dan um yeah there's one more thing I want to mention yeah, on the, on the lessons thing and it's, it's short and it's practical and I'm not going to go through them all right now because they've been done great. But there's a, there's a banjo player here in the Pacific Northwest by the name of Danny Barnes and he has a website and he's an amazing creative musician. He's worked with a lot of great musicians. He's also got super cool solo material and he has written two essays that are on his website and one of them's called how to make a living playing music right. and the other one is called how to play in someone else's band and those both of those i reread once a year well, you know it's I'll like it's them then, linking to those. scripture there's there's so much wisdom in there uh about music and about you know getting along with the group and uh you know like what the stresses are on the leader and how you can make their life easier it's it's common sense stuff uh but it's all you know it's beautifully laid out in those two pieces right. so yeah danny Bones is the guy and i'm sure you'll find him and link them up. absolutely excellent Beautiful. so if you don't follow all that good scripture and, and don't follow all those lessons or just through bad luck you have some train wrecks so let's get to the you, you alluded that you had one let's let's do it yeah you know I've, i i had two that i that i thought i might talk about but the i've i think the the one that i just have to cop to is uh is you know the one that was in front of the most people which was <laughs> and i wish i could remember what show it was uh, it's long since lost to the memory hole but but one night so Magic Man and the Heart Set was second up. Uh, we opened the show with uh, Rock and Heaven Down, which was a a great moment because it's it's one of my favorite heart songs, and they hadn't done it live in a very long time. Uh, so it was a really special moment opening the show with that. The you know like the real hardcore heart fans kind of re- that. It's one of those great show opening moments where you're like, oh, we're in for something special here. 
you know, we're, we're really going to take a journey. It's not just going to be a greatest hits night. Yeah. Uh, but then right after that, we do magic, man. So my, my tech who I want to talk a little bit about later, uh, is a, is a gentleman named, uh, Roland, uh, Lindsay McKay. He actually grew up in uh, Brisbane, I believe. And, uh, wow. um, yeah, he, uh, he was working local crew at a show and, uh, in excess was the show and he kind of got thrown into the fire of setting up some crazy rack full of uh, midi uh, guitar effects. You know, this was some time ago and, uh, and he got it all right. And they were like, okay, well, you want to hit the road with us? So he worked for NXS for about 11 years. Right. That was how he started his road career. And he's worked nope. for many, many greats in the years since. Uh, so he's one of those guys that can fix anything. Yeah. He fixed the tour bus once. <laughs> You're, classic classic salt of the earth aussie but um his uh so he would set up that mini moog for me and tune it and get everything patched in for that first song and then we would go to magic man and there's not a ton of keys in the front half of that tune i'd like trigger some bell tree samples and things like that and a little you know mellotron guitar feedback bits i'd add to thicken but it's mostly all about getting ready for that big synth solo Mm. so my routine would be, you know, we'd get through the first couple of verses and then the guitar solo would happen and I'd stand up and, you know, bob my head and have a good time. And I'd unplug my in-ear monitors from my belt pack and I'd plug them into the headphone jack on the front panel of the mini Moog. Mm. And then I've got my tuner, you know, and I, I kill the main output switch on the Moog. And I tune up, retune up all the oscillators and I get my patch, you know, do the changes to the waveforms and the mixer that I need to do. And I, you know, I'm always super paranoid about making sure that main output switches <laughs> off because I don't want to be just like tuning and noodling and making <laughs> stupid noises, not realizing it because I don't have my ears plugged in a monitor world anymore. Um, so I'd get everything set up just right, get that nice long glide for the big glide down after the feature and then i'd move my headphone jack back into my belt pack and i'd usually i'd have about you know 16 bars left to enjoy and vibe and and get ready to do my big mini moog moment and uh you can see where this is going one night uh (laughs) and i had forgotten to unmute it (laughs) you know like the whole band has dropped out and it's it's you know, I spent a lot of time into figuring out how to present that moment because on the record, it's actually like triple tracked. Okay. Uh, there's yeah. three parts. So I had to do some choreography to figure out how to do it with the Moog. And I used the OB6 uh, for sort of one of the lower Moog parts. And then how to get that glide turned on so you can b- do that big, long swoop down. And it's a it's kind of a crazy, complicated bit of choreography in that little two-bar feature. But so I'm fully locked in. Like that's my one big muscle memory moment of the show that I practiced before I showed up to rehearsals to make sure I could do it smoothly every time. And then nothing's coming out (laughs) of the main synthesizer. And of course I realized within milliseconds what was going on, but there's really no graceful way to pick it back up. So so it was two bars of blank air and then into the solo. So (laughs) 
<laughs> just go on. Everybody got a good laugh out of it. I, I remember the fir- I looked up about halfway through the solo and everybody's just smiling and laughing at me <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> on stage, grooving along. So, was, yep, there it is. There's your, there's your first classic full-on screw-up in front of, you know, 15,000 people or whatever it was that night. <laughs> and big production moment, too. They got lasers shooting off and all kinds of crazy stuff happening. That's amazing. <laughs> yep. No net. That's, no, that that's was... Yep, that's what you get with live music. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, great story. Um, yeah. And, and, I mean, going from one extreme to the other as far as, you know, walking the tightrope um live is is what's um on the horizon in the coming year for you for you dan where potentially you may not be doing a lot of live work still for quite a while i'm really just gonna keep doing what i've been doing which is working here from the home studio it's been a it's been a really fun process learning to embrace that environment and and what i mean by that is as a session and studio player i have had very much embraced the you know the sort of almost macho ethic of oh yeah we're gonna we're we're total pros we're gonna have this thing and take one or two or three and and you know often there's a lot of pressure to do that you know economic pressure to be able to do that and you know you you get a certain amount of pride of being able to do that classic you know, Nashville session guy thing of you walk in and you, you make a chart as the artist plays the song and then you walk into the room and play it. Uh, and I love working like that. And I love working with the live band too. And whenever possible, my favorite thing to do is to track to, to tape like that because it makes everyone not even really because of the sound, I'm not enough of an audiophile to be able to hear what's different about it. But it makes everyone bring their A game, just like knowing that if you're going to have to punch something, you're going to have to do it better yes. because there is no do, you know, and you just, you know, you just don't want to be that guy that screws things up. So um, going from that to working at home, it, the biggest thing of the last year for me was learning to embrace the difference of that environment. I was like, I really I can't sit here and do 30 takes on this piano part and really whittle it into a gem, you know, of a thing that I wouldn't have the time to do and maybe take one. It's the best thing, but you can take the time to explore and embrace it, you know, embrace that. Don't think, Oh, you know, and that's the other thing working alone. You'll often go into this, you know, self doubt funk where you've done 15 takes. It seems dumb. It's like, man, really, Maybe I really do suck at this. Maybe I should just quit. <laughs> you know, that thing you get when you're home alone instead of working with yeah. other people. Uh, uh, but yeah, it's sort of been a psychological journey of, of learning to embrace the differences in that process and working asynchronously with people. Um, I've been doing some work with, with Anne. Uh, we've actually written a couple of tunes together, which right. is something... I, you know, never would have been mentally prepared to even be asked to do if it had not been for my friend KC, like I said, dragging yeah. me out of my shell and get right that record with her. So that's been a real joy and, and just working on doing those songs, you know, two or three different ways. Like, how does it really work? Let's take our time with it and working with the, working with the guys in the band remotely. Um, and also, 
for a good part of this year. Uh, Nancy's been doing a, a solo album, and she asked me to play a bunch of keyboards right. on that as well. Uh, we're getting close to completion on that. She's been doing a lot of writing, and uh, that's that's been a lot of fun too. Working with some of the same dudes, some different dudes, mm. and uh, it's yeah, it's just a joy, and it's it's interesting watching everybody getting better at working remotely. Uh, but there's still nothing like the magic of That's working right. in person. And Anne is very much, you know, she's, she's kind of like me and that she's at her most happy when there's a band in the room. Yeah. And, uh, she actually got stir crazy enough at some point that, uh, in the, in the middle of one of our somewhat dipped periods of pandemic chaos here in the state, she actually, uh, you know, leased herself a tour bus and, uh, her and her husband, uh, journeyed from Florida all the way up to the Pacific Northwest. And we, uh, put a band together of Seattle folks. So nobody had to travel except her and, uh, uh, did some, did some live band in a room tracking at a very well ventilated studio with Anne, you know, off in a isolated vocal Mm -hmm. booth and all of us masks the whole time you know it was a drag you know you don't get to do a lot of those obviously nobody's gathering around a a single mic to do a bunch of gang harmony vocals you gotta gotta keep the protocol but just the joy of being in a studio again uh yeah i didn't realize Mm. how much i missed it until we had that week um so yeah i think it's just going to be more of the same for the indefinite future and for me it's really just trying to uh you know i'm keeping fairly busy people hitting me up for for random projects and and producers that that like to use me on stuff that that bring me steady work but also even when nothing's in the queue just just being disciplined about going out there and making making funny noises with the matriarch you know or, or just like putting a random track down uh you know learning something new about logic just just trying to make make music every day uh, we miss being out on the road. Yeah. We really miss it. You know, the, the group text is still going hot, uh, you know, <laughs> but, uh, it's, uh, yeah, just gotta max out the moment that we're in. And it's, uh, I mean, for me, I've been spending a lot of time on Bach, just working through those two part inventions that nobody ever managed to make me wade my way through yeah, when I was little, little taking yeah. classical lessons. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, no, that's excellent. And and before we get on to the last two questions, um, Dan, just when you mentioned Billy Joel and um, the, the impact Piano Man had on you, I've always thought the last five or six years, is there a better gig for a keyboard player than what Billy Joel has now at Madison Square Garden, obviously pre-COVID, where he, he sits in his mansion uh, relatively close by, has a chopper pick him up, drop him close to the venue, gets into the venue, sits down, plays an amazing gig to a full Madison Square Garden, and then is home and in bed again by 11 o'clock that night. Does it get any yeah. better than that? No, I don't think so. I, th- <laughs> I, th- I think if you're, if you're Billy, if you're a New Yorker through and through, that is going to be like the reward for a long <laughs> career (laughs) all kinds of crazy you know management screw overs and drama and difficulty you know adapting to the mtv era it's like okay at the end of the day like this is this is it exactly (laughs) you're right i don't think you know from the outside looking in you can you can get bored with anything it's it's amazing that 
the human capacity for whining about situations we're in. But I think that that's one that I'd be, I I could probably milk out for a few decades in that position (laughs) with joy in my heart. (laughs) And then obviously speaking of keyboard players you admire, we've, we've started a new segment on the show, which is um, tagging a keyboard player. So just interested if, you know, um, God forbid you had to listen to us talk again or whoever it was, which keyboard player would you love to see interviewed about their career? Okay. It's um, I couldn't choose between these two. Uh, can I do two? Two's great. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, you know, you got to get Ben Montench on there. Oh, if, if, yes. If there, there's one, you know, if I had to pick one, it would be Ben Mont. I've been asking myself, you know, like I know, I know we're all supposed to shoot towards finding our own unique voice and signature sound and creativity and not just ape our heroes, but still at, you know, I'm, I'm 12 days away from 40 years old here when I'm stumped about what to do with the track. I just say, okay, what yes. would Benmont do? Um, uh, just to respond to that one, Dan, it's absolutely on the bucket list and I've made an initial approach, but as you can imagine, Benmont um, has management and um, is very hard oh, yeah. to track down. But um, yeah. between him and Roy Bitten, they'd probably be my top two and I'm certainly trying. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I will be tuning in for sure. I mean, I tuned into all these anyway, but, you know, he's just like, he's he had fully developed a brilliant aesthetic of how to play keyboards yeah. in a guitar band by age 23 and he spent his whole career fine tuning it and adapting it. And it's, it's an aesthetic that aligns with mine. And the other great thing about Benmon is he's had the best of both worlds. He's been in a band in a, in the, one of the great bands of all time, like in the band in the best and highest sense of that term. And also he had a brilliant career as a session That's musician right. working with a whole range of artists. He got, he got to do both and uh, just the parts he comes up with and the value of executing those with discipline and finding a way to fit in the ensemble. Mm. And also he's instantly recognizable and can play his ass off when the moment comes That's to right. do it. Uh, so yeah, nice he's, guy. he's my main guy. And then the other one, uh, that I'd really love to hear just because I haven't heard any interviews with him, but I'm kind of obsessed with him pl- as playing as a, uh, Welsh keyboard player by the name of Geraint Watkins. Okay. Yeah. He worked with, uh, he's worked with Nick Lowe quite a lot right. and Dave Edmonds and wow. Mark Knopfler. And I think he worked with Paul McCartney in some aspect somewhere along the way. And he's, he has a, uh, great solo album, uh, that came out in 2019, I think uh, Rush of Blood is the name of the album. Uh, you'll have nice. to check me on that. But yeah, Geraint Watkins, he's a fantastic player. I got into him through uh, uh, his work on some of these more recent Nick Lowe albums from the last couple of decades of Nick's sort of elder statesman yes. uh, uh, era, which I love. Oh, I love the way he sort today. of adapted himself uh, to his age and and you know, embraced it and just matured in a beautiful, wonderful way stylistically. And as a songwriter too, um, I mean, there's many more. I've certainly spent a lot of the last few years admiring and deconstructing and reconstructing the keyboard parts that Howard Lease came up with in the, in what I consider my favorite era of heart. Um, and there's a long list of jazz pianists and organists that I, you know, sort of admire from afar 
like people who can climb Mount Everest, I can, I can admire it. And at the same time, no, I'm never going to be able to approach that level of facility at that music. Uh, but yeah, no. if I had to pick one, Ben Mont. Yeah, challenge accepted. <laughs> You're fantastic. Well, th thank you. And yeah, we'll, we'll definitely try and keep trying to track him down. Yeah. <laughs> Our final question, which we ask everyone, Dan, is what are the five discs, if you were stuck on a desert island, you would have to have with you? Okay, so obviously I spent some some time ahead thinking about this one, and uh, depending on how I felt that day, uh, you know, I got to give the standard cheater answer that your guests give. I might take <laughs> revolver, rubber sole, help, a hard day's night, and Sergeant or Pepper's. Or go the box set. Well, I think we've had at least two guests say Beatles box set, uh, <laughs> and count it as one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely. A, that's a good plan. Um, it, leaving. The Beatles aside, if I can, if I can pick five non-Beatles, it would be, uh, you know, these are not necessarily the music that was formative for me as a musician or as a keyboard player, but it's just the stuff over the last few years that I've loved listening to the most. The stuff that when I listen to it in the car, it makes me feel alive and connected and excited about being a human being and makes me want to, makes me want to holler, you know, and those... Mm -hmm. Those things are uh, Donny Hathaway's live album. Oh, yeah. um, and then uh, there's a, a great American band called NRBQ. Uh, and their, their excellent album from, uh, I think, the late 70s sometimes called At Yankee Stadium. Sure. Uh, and it, it's, uh, it's kind of a joke. Uh, title because it's actually a studio album and the the cover is just them like standing around on the field in an empty Yankee stadium. <laughs> but uh, their, you know, their aesthetic is all over the place uh, and I love every bit of it. So NRBQ at Yankee Stadium, um, there was a great album in the, I think in the early aughts by Michelle Indigo Cello, which is one of my all time favorites called Bitter. Uh, it's got some some great writing, great singing, great keyboard playing, great string arrangements. Uh, that's just one I go back to over and over and over again. Um, uh, there's a, a songwriter and singer and excellent instrumentalist named Aoife O'Donovan. She had an album okay. named Fossils uh, that I just loved to death. It was uh, uh, I think she co-produced it with Tucker Martin maybe down in Portland. I'm not sure where they did it, but it's, it's one of my very favorites too in the, in the last decade or so. And then I'd say my number five is one that I just keep going back to, um, which is, uh, there's a, a little university. I'm not even sure where it is in America, but it's called Grand Valley State University. And their, their sort of modern music, new music department did a, a re-recording of uh, music for 18 musicians by Steve Reich. And it's like just imagining the work to, to put in, to get that piece of music ready and perform it. And they did an amazing job with it. You know, I listened to, to the Steve Reich ensemble recording too, but the, that Grand Valley State University thing, there's maybe it's just something about being out in the middle of the plains, wherever that school yeah. is, but they, they nailed the expansive, you know, feel of that, of that piece of music, uh, which is one of my very favorites. So right. those are, 
those are my five picks. If I'm not, if I don't just decide to take the Beatles. Beatles, no, agreed. <laughs> no, great picks. And I, I always feel that's a bit of a selfish question because I, I just love discovering the news, uh, new or less familiar stuff that, that um, guests choose. So that's brilliant. Um, just as an aside, thoughts on the Peter Jackson film on, on the Beatles? How, how amazing does that footage look? I, I I have done a thing where I've deliberately decided not to look at the trailer. Oh, I'm go. just fair I'm, enough. I'm I'm gonna go in cold, and I can't wait. Uh, the, uh, just uh, me all too. The me too, come, Dan. Yeah, all the things that have come to light in the in the last five years or so. Uh, you know, I've really enjoyed the the white album, sort of super expanded release, and I mean, as a kid, you know, obviously, as I said, very first thing that the, the the Beatles were always playing around the house along with Paul Simon and, and Motown records. But uh, I was in junior high when the anthology came out and I just got so obsessed with that. I almost came to know some of those alternate takes <laughs> or you know, strip mixes better than I knew the original versions. Uh, just, yeah, I love everything about that. So I'm very much looking forward to that coming out. And I'm sure I'm not alone in being one of the people that would happily watch all 56 hours of footage that apparently Peter Jackson had access to. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I know most it of it would be just boring studio stuff, but for people like us, that's not boring. So. Yeah, uh, I'll watch it. I'll I'll watch some some uh, some assistant engineer coiling cables right. while John smokes a cigarette, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Sign me up. Exactly. I'll watch it in the theatre. <laughs> that's right. No, that's a perfect point. And so, I mean, Dan, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely brilliant. And um, yeah, it sounds like you've got a busy year ahead and, and many, many years into the future. I mean, you're a young thing, not even 40, damn you. So um, yeah, you've, you've got a hell of a career ahead. So no, really appreciate your time and um, yeah, best of luck with it. Oh, thanks very much. It was such an honor and a pleasure to talk to you guys. And uh, I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing. It's been a it's been great listening to the episodes and, and uh, keep up the good work. And there was Dan. I, I just can't think of anything original to say, Paul. Every time I say what a wonderful guest, and it's true, I'm not being uh, polite. He was a pleasure. Dan was an absolute pleasure to talk to and had some really interesting insights. Yeah, maybe keyboard players are all just really good people because I, I feel the same as you. Like every time we wrap up a, a recording, I always go, "Well, wasn't wasn't he or she a really nice person?" But yeah, I, I felt what was great about Dan was he's so generous with his his philosophies around what makes a keyboard player successful and what we can all work on. And, and you know, I got a lot of value out of that personally, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners will as well. Yeah, no, huge thank you to Dan. For, for doing that um so that's it for for this episode we'll be back again in two to three weeks but just a reminder that you can keep in touch via a few means uh, as always our website is keyboardchronicles.com uh, we're on facebook at facebook.com forward slash keyboard chronicles and twitter at the keyboard chr1 if you like good old-fashioned email we're always keen to hear from you and um, the email address is editor at keyboardchronicles.com uh, we do have a Patreon account. We've got some news on that in coming weeks. But for the price of a coffee a month, you can help us go from strength to strength. And that's at patreon.com forward slash keyboard chronicles. So again, Paul, thanks for joining me. Always an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you again for having me. I've had great fun.
and um, most importantly to our brilliant listeners out there who continue to grow week after week which is hugely gratifying we hope to see you back here next episode <laughs> <laughs>